Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you can join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. Welcome! It is such a privilege to be here this morning and share with you guys. For those of you who maybe don't know me as well, my name is Michael. I've had the privilege of serving as associate pastor here at Community Church for the last... Oh, almost 10 months now. So, um, to, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I think that's Jane, but I can't tell that started. So, um, You're leaving. I'm, yeah, and I, sorry, but not sorry. I, yeah, we, uh, me, myself and my family will be stepping away. This will be our last Sunday here. And uh, it's been a privilege to be able to serve here, to get to know many of you, to, to, to watch you sacrifice and serve and invest yourselves in the kingdom of God. So thank you so much for that privilege of being part of what God is doing here. Uh, the one thing I do want to plug a little bit is uh, one of the ministries that I've been really heavily involved in has been community students. And that's our, our uh, ministry to 6th through 12th graders. And uh, it's been meeting every Wednesday night from 6 o'clock to 7.45. We are going to be taking the summer off, uh, but next fall, Community Students is going to kick up again full bore. We've got some great volunteer leaders, and uh, Lord willing, we'll also have a staff member on board who will be overseeing student ministries by that time. So the church is looking to expand a little bit and have a worship arts pastor and then another staff member that will oversee children's, I mean, not children's, uh, student ministries, 6th through 12th grade and maybe up into college. And so I really want to encourage all of you to um, get engaged in the lives of the teenagers here at Community Church. We have got some amazing students and uh, this, this last week, we just had our final wrap-up uh, meeting on Wednesday night, and we all got T-shirts, and I'd rip my shirt open and show you how cool they are, uh, but I'm wearing a microphone in here, and it would sound funny. So, um, but they're really cool T-shirts, and they're really cool students, and you have an opportunity to invest in the lives of some amazing teenagers. And I know some of you guys are probably afraid of them. Um, and, and like I mentioned in first service, that you maybe have raised one or two or three of your own, and so you have every right to be afraid, but understand that God can heal you and give you the opportunity to step back into ministry to teenagers. And some of you, uh, maybe you are, uh, have a couple extra years on you. You're thinking, how can I be of any value? I want you to check when you get home later today, look all over your body and see if you uh, can discover a ministry best buy date on you. I'm going to venture to say that there is no expiration date on ministry for anybody in this building. And so there, it, you haven't reached a point where it's just like, well, I mean, I'm probably not good at. You can be in the hands of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to pray this summer for a couple of things. Number one, to, to pray for our students, 6th through 12th grade, and how God is at work in their lives. It hasn't gotten any easier being a teenager than when you were one. Uh, it hasn't gotten any, any less complicated or emotional. In fact, some of us maybe would think it's, it's maybe a little more complicated and a, and a little more difficult today. Uh, second, be praying not just for our teenagers, but be praying for the search team as they look for a, a, a new pastor uh, to step in and lead the student ministry. And then finally, you pray, God, how would you like to use me in the student ministry? Because there are some of you here who have got so much wisdom and so much love and so much passion for Jesus that our teenagers need to see. And it's a once-a-week commitment to, to come in and spend time with them. But it's also the ability, if you really want to, you can learn or own your skills on texting and Facebooking and Twittering and really get into their lives that way. You can maybe go see some high school musicals if you like that. Um, you, you know, cool things like that, being involved in the lives of teenagers. So I just want to encourage everybody here to pray for those three things this summer and know that uh, your students here are amazing. 
they're worth investing in. So we're going to continue our uh, look into the Gospel of Mark today. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open them up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. Now, just a reminder, um, I, most of you probably do not recall this. It's probably slipped your mind by now. But the core theme of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so when we read the Gospel of Mark, as we look into it, we can understand that everything Mark writes is to reveal to us the nature of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you remember all the way back to earlier um, sessions in our study of the Gospel of Mark, by the way, this is week 13 in the Gospel of Mark, so if, you, if it feels like it's been a while, it has, and we're still on chapter 6, so we got some time to go, but this is a beautiful gospel. It was written to Gentiles. It was written to the Greeks and the Romans, and so when Mark writes, he uses Greek and Roman styles, and he expresses things in a way that Gentiles will understand. So if we look real quick, a brief overview on what Mark 6 verses 1 through 6 is going to look like. Three points we're going to try and cover it this morning. Number one, a turning point, a turning point in the lives of those who hear and see Jesus. Second, excuses, excuses. The people who see and hear Jesus begin to make excuses about why they don't follow him. And then finally, a movement of God stifled. Not ended, not shut down, but stifled, kind of brought in and uh, becomes less than it could be. If we continue here, this, this passage, this little section, it's, a, it's an example of what's called a, a cryah. Actually, it should be like a cryah, but my, my pronunciation, I didn't want to, you know, sound like I was clearing my throat too much. But so a cryah, and, and what it is, is it's a, it's a, um, it's a method and, and it's, a, it's, it's really a short story, and it climaxes with a, a special saying, and something that's pithy, and something that's directly applicable, and something that's very meaningful for life. And so what we see in, in these six verses is this very short story of the interaction of Jesus with the people of Nazareth, with the intent of teaching a singular thing through a saying. Now, some of us, we, we've experienced these um, in our own life, the chaya, it is this, uh, a penny saved is a penny earned. Anybody, who said that? Anybody know? Ben Franklin. ben Franklin. We, Nate, did you have it? You were Ben Franklin. You were ready. Man, just yell it out next time. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't wait for hands raised. We just, we, we, we yell here in the adult room. All right. Um, now when you go back down to kid zone, be sure to raise your hand. But <laughs> So, uh, you know, we've we got things that ask not what, you can, or what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Who, that's right. So we, we, we remember that this, these are examples in our culture and in our context of short stories. Then we can, we can see the story that surrounds that saying and understand what the point was. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. This is a short story of Jesus' interaction with the people of Nazareth and a singular point that he draws out in this time. So read along with me, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And it goes on to say this. He left there. Now, anybody remember where there was last week? Where did Jesus end up last week? He was in Capernaum, or Capernaum, as Pastor Shannon wants to say. I did, that just sounds hard for me. Um, Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is where he was, so he left there and came to his hometown, which was Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed 
at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. And so as we look at this passage, this short story, we can immediately see what the point is or what the saying is that should stick with us. But let's spend a few minutes and work our way toward it and make sure that we understand the heart of what's going on here. So number one, Jesus, he left there, came to his hometown Nazareth, and he brought with him his disciples. Now, when we think of disciples, how many do we think of typically? Twelve. But that isn't necessarily the case. Understand that at this stage in Jesus' ministry, that he potentially any given day would have disciples or followers coming after him. That would be, you know, the twelve or three of the twelve or a hundred people who had heard his teaching earlier that day and were following after him. So when he comes with his disciples, I want to just bring to your attention in Scripture, unless it specifically says the 12 or 3 or a specific number, to maybe even begin to imagine sometimes this is bigger than what you maybe were thinking. And if all of these people are coming into town with Jesus, guess what's going on? There's a buzz. There's... Everyone is talking about what they've just seen. I mean, just in the previous chapter, things that have happened just days previously. Jesus has done things like cast out a demon that no one could cast. And cast, in fact, cast out lots of demons. Their name was Legion, which says lots and lots. Literally, it's a thousand demons. And, and what else has he done? Well, we see he heals a woman and he brings back to life a young girl who is the daughter of a leader in the synagogue in Capernaum. We've got all this amazing stuff happening, not to mention what's happened before this. And so when Jesus comes into town and his followers come with him, everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows the stories. Everybody sees just how amazing this guy is. And then he walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he begins to teach. Now, this wasn't unusual. For a, a, a visiting rabbi or a, a known teacher in the community to come in and read the scrolls for the day and then expound upon it. Now, uh, so Jesus would have come in and he would have, they would have pulled out these great big scrolls and he would have read the verses for the day, the passage for the day. And, and we don't know exactly here, what, it doesn't say what he read, but we do know that he took some time then to expand upon what he read, to teach application. And so the people are astonished. And then they start asking questions. Well, here's what's going on. Number one, Jesus, he's teaching truth and changing lives. And he is astonishing everyone who is witness to it. Now, in the Greek, the word astonished there, it literally means to be knocked out. So he's not literally knocking people out, but you you all can get the picture of just how amazing it is to experience the teaching of Jesus, to experience the miracles that are going on. It's just like being knocked out. It's just overwhelming. And, And these people can see that real and amazing things are happening. And and what happens is his teaching and his miracles, it brings the people in Nazareth to a point of decision. They have got to come to a place where they decide, is this prophet, is this person, are they of God or are they of the devil? Are they trying to lead us toward the truth or are they trying to lead us astray? They'd come to a turning point. They see things happening and they must make a choice. They must make a decision. Is this of God? Is God really speaking into our lives? Does God really want this to happen? Or is this something that we're being led astray in? Is this something that's meant to be a distraction? And so they begin to discuss amongst themselves. And here's what they say. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. And so as we look about it, a little deeper into the things that they say about Jesus, we can understand more about their attitude. They say, isn't this the carpenter? Well, they, they weren't 
looking down on him as a carpenter. In fact, carpentry in this era was engaging in, in not just doing things with wood, but maybe even stone. And, and, and so they were really valuable people when it comes to who they were in that vocation. But also in this culture, there was the mindset that what you were born into is what you stayed. If you were born into a family that did carpentry, a, a lower class family that worked with their hands, that is who you were for your life. There was no class climbing. There was, there was no achieving more. You know, we all have the, the understanding, the belief that if you work hard, you, you do well in school, maybe you go get a college degree, you get a great job, that you can achieve more than what your parents achieved. You can become more influential. You can have more in your life than what your parents had. You're not locked into a station. But here in, in Jesus' day and age, it's almost like a caste system where you're born into where you belong and to do anything more than what you're born into is to be presumptuous. It is to be overreaching. And so when they talk about Jesus as the carpenter, it's with disdain. Listen, he's just a carpenter. How is it that he thinks he has the place to teach us? How, how is it that he thinks he can stand up and heal people like this. That's not what he should be doing. Thanks, Jesus, for the great table, but we don't need you healing. That's not your job. You're just a carpenter. They also call him the son of Mary, and we think this is possibly a derogatory statement, identifying him as the son of his mother and not the son of his father because in this day and age when you were spoken to respectfully you were Jesus the son of Joseph acknowledging your lineage and acknowledging who you were in the community but instead they call him the son of Mary now some of us from differing backgrounds might think well cool you know son of Mary I mean Mary's pretty important right not so much that's not what they're saying here they're actually calling into question everything that he is. You know, the son of Mary. You remember Mary, right? That girl who showed up pregnant when she wasn't married, and all of a sudden Jesus is born? You remember Mary? Come on, everybody. They're digging on him. They're, they're calling him less than. They're calling into question whether or not he's even a legitimate child in calling him the son of Mary. And then they point out, well, look, here are his siblings. His siblings, they're all just like us. His whole family is right here amongst us. Who is this guy? And why does he think he has the right to speak into our lives? And it goes on to say that they were offended by him. And the word offended that, that we translate into English, offended, the word in the Greek it literally means that they turn away from him and sin. That they reject him and instead choose to sin. We see the, the same word used in other places in Scripture for the heathen, the, the apostate, those who turn away from the ways of God and choose sin instead. And so we, we see their reaction to Jesus. And then Jesus diagnosis what's going on and here it is this is the saying that this story is built around this is the central point this is what we're supposed to understand Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his household so he says a prophet is with honor everywhere else <laughs> Someone who's recognized as a prophet is, is just lifted up and lauded, except in the midst of those who are familiar with them. Their hometown, their relatives, even their own household. Now this is completely counterintuitive because we would think in these three places at least, even if everybody else was against you, that the people who were your hometown folk, your relatives, your household, they would be the ones who would support you. I mean, growing up, you always 
knew, you know, or at least I did. You wanted to get some praise. You go tell mom how great you are. And she'd be like, I agree. You're the best. Well, Jesus had none of that. He comes home, and it's not that Mary was necessarily saying she didn't believe, but they're, they're all kind of holding him at a distance is what Scripture kind of reveals to us. They're all like, Jesus, are you sure this is how you want to do this? Are you sure this is you? Are you sure this is the way this is going to be? We don't really, ah, oh, you make us uncomfortable. This is difficult, Jesus. And so we see that, that even his very household is struggling with who he is and accepting him and wholeheartedly jumping into the works of God and the move of God in this era. We would expect instead here that, that when Jesus walks into Nazareth, there would maybe be you know, a, a ticker tape parade and, and all kinds of exciting stuff going on and banquets and feasts. But instead, they're looking at him and going, you're just like us. What's your deal? Why do you think you're special? And it's because they look at him and they became apathetic toward him. And they use their familiarity as an excuse to ignore him. It's like, well, we know you. So we can just ignore all this amazing stuff that you're doing because, I mean, we know you're just the carpenter. You're just the son of Mary. You're, you're just like us. So they pushed him aside and ignored him. And in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, in, in the um, synoptic version of this, the parallel version of this, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, it doesn't say that they just rejected him in the sense of we don't like you, we, we turn away from you, but it says that um, they got up, drove him out. dead oh no cool i don't know they got up over oh All right, so uh, they, they uh, got up from the edge of the town and uh, the edge of the hill, intending to hurl him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Thanks, guys. And so uh, the, the reaction, we, we read it in, in the Gospel of Mark, and it seems to be kind of muted, but, but in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us they actually took him to, to the cliff on the edge of town, and they were going to throw him over. And do you think their intent was just to give him a fun ride? No, it, it's to kill him. And, and there's kind of a common misconception about stoning. Uh, some of us tend to think, we, we think of stoning in the Bible, and we think that everybody picks up little rocks and just starts throwing them at you. Um, you know, I, when I was a kid at the bus stop, we would play a game. It was kind of like dodgeball, except it was rocks. And we'd throw them across the street at each other, boys against girls. You know, and... Um, it hurt, but I didn't die, you know, and, and the deal is, is though, when we think about stoning, sometimes we think about somebody picking up a piece of gravel and be like, but stoning is actually, we, we, we understand it now that, that they would take someone to, to a cliff and they would throw them over the cliff and then they'd find the biggest rocks they could and drop them off of the cliff onto the person until they were dead. So this was not a pleasant experience that they had planned for Jesus. And in fact, this was a punishment that was common for blasphemy, for other sins that were terribly egregious. And so Jesus and the people of Nazareth, they're looking at him and they're ready to stone him. And, and really, they've made their choice, haven't they? They've said, you're not of God. We believe you're of Satan. And so we are going to be done with you. Ultimately, they chose not to follow him, 
but instead to reject him, based not upon the merits of his teachings and works, but really, I think, because he didn't meet their expectations. He wasn't the Savior they wanted. Do you know what Savior they wanted? They wanted the Savior who was going to be the king, who was going to come riding in on a horse, and who was going to kick Rome out, and who was going to make everything better. That's what they wanted. And so when Jesus walks in, and he shows, him, shows them who he really is by his teachings and his miracles. They start making excuses about why this isn't acceptable and this can't clearly be of God. And ultimately, it boils down to this isn't what we want. This isn't who we expected. And so there's some repercussions from this. As they reject Jesus, it says this, he was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. What we see is Jesus has been in other places, even places that are Gentile areas, like where the demoniac was healed. And he's doing miracles, and he's changing lives, and he's teaching the truth of the good news of his coming. And yet he gets home, and they reject him, and he can't do any miracles because of their unbelief. Now, this doesn't say that he lost his power, but this is instead to say Jesus in his ministry always did miracles as a response to faith and in order to build faith, to prove who he was. And so when people rejected him outright and allowed no room for him to reveal himself and show who he was, he did not do miracles. He was unable to do miracles because that wasn't his mode. He wasn't coming in there to be a showman, but instead to show who he was. And so Jesus is unable to do miracles. And it even says he was amazed at their unbelief. Can you imagine? Jesus is, is amazed at unbelief. He sits back and goes, how is it they don't believe? He's got to be brokenhearted at this. His family, his relatives, the people he grew up with don't believe in him. And not because his works are illegitimate, not because his miracles are untrue, not because he's teaching falsehood, but simply because he's not who they wanted him to be. He doesn't meet their expectations and their standards. And because of that, a whole community misses out on the ministry of Jesus Christ because of their rejection of him unable to do miracles. This movement of God in the lives of the people of Nazareth is stifled because of their unbelief. That doesn't mean God wasn't moving and doing elsewhere. And it doesn't mean in individuals, but it means a whole community misses out because of the unbelief of those in it. So we come back and we look and we go... Jesus came to his hometown, he taught, he did miracles. They rejected him, not on his merits of who he was and what he did, but instead because of their own preconceptions and desires. And he says to us, the only place a prophet is without respect and honor is amongst those who are complacent and apathetic and see him for less than he really is. And because of that, they missed out. So we're all, as community church, as the people of Sturgeon Bay and Door County, going to come into and experience over and over again turning points in our life. I know that God has great things in store for community church. I believe it. I hope you do too. Because here I am, somebody who got to come in and spend a season and see things as an outsider who became a little inside, who gets to be outside again now. And I get to see how amazing it is, what God is doing, that the things, the people, the resources, he's invested into this body. And I so look forward to what he's going to do. And as this body continues to develop and mature and expand its influence, there are going to continually be turning points 
where you as individuals and as families and as the body of Christ are going to have to sit back and go, do we look at this and say, God, you're moving and we're all in? Or do we look at this and do we make excuses? And do we complain? And do we question the move of God and back off and stifle his spirit and his move in our lives, in our communities? Because God has big things planned, but it won't always be exactly the way you want it. It's not always going to be exactly the way I want it. It's not going to be the way that Pastor Shannon wants it every time. But guess what? When we trust God and we move where he's moving and do what he says to do, it'll always be what God wants. It'll always be what's best for his body. It'll always be what is best for turning this church into a lighthouse for this community. Anybody want to see the whole peninsula saved for Jesus? Yeah, me too. Me too. When I come back, I want it to be, you know, like Zion. Maybe you'll vote to change the name or something. But anyway, wouldn't that be sweet? But as a people... We've got to move when God moves. We've got to trust in his hand. We've got to be able to be uncomfortable and, and let him move in ways that are beyond our expectations and that maybe even scare us. Now, I do want to give a little warning. Not everything that glitters is gold. Not everything that feels good or seems to be right is. In fact, Jesus warns us in Matthew Chapter 7, verse 15, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Now, I am not pointing fingers at anybody, not calling anyone out. But understand, while none of us would say we have false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but are ravaging wolves, all of us could be that person. All of us, when our own desires take over, when our own Lust for power and influence corrupts us, could be the person who derails the work of God in any given community because we are selfish, because we make it about us, we make it about our desires, we make it about our prophecy and our vision instead of falling in line with the work of God as it presents itself to us and moving wholeheartedly. Uh, Jesus goes on to say a little bit later in the chapter, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, he's, and, and, and he says, even, even some who, who prophesy in my name, even some who do great works in my name and heal in my name, on the day of judgment, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. And so we want to be a people who are not about the works, not about the doing but who are so in love with Jesus and know him so deeply that things happen by his power around us. That we move and do and become because we love him desperately. Now the second thing we've got to be careful is that we don't make excuses. As God moves, as this church expands, as, as God does new and exciting things with community church, that we don't make excuses. The first excuse we can make is we'll start discounting the work of God because it's become commonplace in our lives. We stop watching for the miraculous. We stop paying attention to the move of God because it's just what we expect. A kind of an example. Anybody know who Ray Harryhausen was? Anybody? There was one person in first service who raised their hand. And see, I thought this would be a perfect example, but I'm such a nerd that apparently there aren't many nerds. Um, anybody ever seen, it's, it's an old movie, Clash of the Titans? Now, this is an 80s movie, so Clash of the Titans. So some of you, um, some of you Xers, maybe you've seen Clash of the Titans. Let's go back, some boomers. Sinbad, the, the voyages of Sinbad. Ever seen that one, the fighting skeletons? That's Ray Harryhausen. He was a genius in his time as, as he began to do new things with animation. It, it was all stop motion stuff. He only made like 20 movies in his whole career, but it was all cutting edge amazingness. Well, now we have an organization, a, a business uh, called Industrial Light and Magic. Anybody familiar with them? Any nerds in here? There's a couple nerds. All right, we need more nerds. Anybody, if you've ever seen 30-foot robots on the screen, 
or you, you've seen aliens that look real and things like that in a movie, that's industrial light and magic for the most part. They are on, I mean, just every movie, it seems, industrial light and magic plays at least a small role in bringing the, the imaginary into reality in a movie. Now, we as 21st century consumers, we go back and we watch those older movies and we're like, oh, that's quaint. That, I mean, you can tell that's not real. Duh. It's fighting skeletons. Nobody would think it was real. But, but we, 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 we tend to look back at things that have happened. And because we've seen something a little bit better and a little bit bigger, we discount the work of someone in our own lives spiritually. We, sometimes as we mature... We forget that other people are coming along where we've already been. And we expect everybody who walks in the door to be like us. And we start discounting the work of God in our lives because for us it's commonplace. But for somebody else who's still rough and dirty and gritty spiritually, we look at them and go, yeah, God can't be at work in you because, I mean, look at you. Because we've com become complacent. We, we think it's the norm to be where we're at. We have to understand that people are going to be coming along all the time as this church continues to grow and expand. The second thing that we do is those of us who are grumpy, myself included, we tend to discount the work of God because it doesn't come in the form or the fashion that we expected. And, and I think that this is true for, for many of us. If we've been in the faith a while, we've been in church for a while, when things are different, what do we do? We freak out. Uh, the, the, the church I'm going to, um, I, I already love the people there. Not as much as I love you guys, of course. But um, I, I was talking to one of the ladies, though, and the pastor who served there before me, um, he moved the chairs. He rearranged the chairs. How could God be in that? When he was trying to make more spaces for visitors and moved the chairs and moved the, her spot, it, it, it brought her to a place where it was like, how can God be in this? It, the move of God, that's a small example of how it's not going to come in the form or the fashion that maybe we expect or what we like. Everybody know that each generation is different. Have you noticed that? Yeah. That, that parents and kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, they're all shaped by different cultural influences. And what that honestly means is that ministry between generations is like missions work. You're speaking into a different culture. The language may be the same, but the culture is unique. And so what happens is that generations who have control of things tend to look at the next and say, be like us. This is what it means to be a Christian. You're going to look like us and dress like us and talk like us. And the next generation says, but that isn't what scripture says. And we say, yeah, but that's what makes us comfortable. And so as the church grows and develops and God does new works New things are going to happen, and guess what? If you've been here a while, you might become uncomfortable because all of a sudden it's a new culture you're reaching. All of a sudden it's a new generation of believers that you are speaking into. So instead of sitting there and, and crossing your arms and telling us how terrible it is, grow, develop, mature, be the missionary you were made to be. Don't discount the work of God because it doesn't come in the form or the fashion you expect. Because when we look like the people of Nazareth, when we see all these great things but we reject them because it makes us uncomfortable, because it's not what we expect, because it's not in line with, with how we feel about it, how it should be, we ultimately can stifle the move of God in our own community. How sad would that be? How sad would it be that, that God's vision is to reach this whole peninsula through us? And we respond with, yeah, but I mean, if we have to change the songs, no, God, 
I don't believe that's of you. Baloney. You know what? What we, we don't serve coffee, instead we serve hot chocolate because that's what people like. Well, no, God, I really like coffee, and so this must not be of you. You guys get the picture. Those were petty things, but, but things are going to change. And if we respond like the, Naz- the people of Nazareth in unbelief and rejection, we stand the chance of missing out on the move of God in our midst. If you look with me, Hebrews Chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. If you want to turn your Bible, do, but I'll read it. And it's a bit of a chunk. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to to Jewish believers, and he's explaining to them the importance of belief. And he's referencing all the way back to the children of Israel who had been freed from Egypt through the leadership of Moses. God brings them right to the edge of the promised land the first time. They send out 12 spies into the land. And when those 12 spies return, how many of them had a bad report? Anybody remember? Ten of the spies said, "Uh uh-uh, this place is scary. These people are big. There's no way. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they said, you know what? That's true. It's big. It's scary. But our God can do it. And God is able, if we'll just believe The people of Israel, who did they follow after? The ten doubters. The ten unbelievers. And the writer in Hebrews wants us to understand a truth about that in our own lives. So starting in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, They will not enter my rest. So when they followed the 10 spies who said, This isn't possible, there's no way, God responded not by saying, Oh, come on, guys. Instead, that whole generation who rejected the plans of God and the works of God, they wandered in the desert and died. They didn't get to see the good things that God wanted for them because of their unbelief. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? He's asking, who was it that rebelled? It was the very people who had everything they needed to follow in faith. They're the ones who rebelled. With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. God is going to continually bring this body as he expands its influence, as he grows it, as he matures it to points of choices, turning points, where this body is going to have to say, you as individuals, your family, you're going to have to say, this is of God, it's scary, It doesn't feel great. It's not what we expected, but let's go in wholeheartedly because God has given us the victory and He is moving. Or we'll be like the people noted here. We see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. I want you to hold on to this warning from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart that turns away from God, that is offended by the works of God. Instead, be the people who, when you see God working, join in, even when it hurts, even when it's uncomfortable. Do you realize that some of the most beautiful moves of God come with a cost sometimes? Sometimes it's going to hurt for God to really move. 
We're going to be uncomfortable. We're going to sacrifice. But on the other side of it, because we knew it was the move of God and we gave ourselves over to it wholeheartedly, miracles happen. Lives are changed. The peninsula looks more like Jesus because of who we are in him. Three questions as we finish out today. Are you genuinely prepared to accept and submit to the move of God in your life? Now, I ask in your life, because some of you need to trust God for that first and initial move, that thing that he wants to do in you, that, that change that he wants to make in you. Maybe for the first time you understand that you are a person who's rebelled against God. You've, you've sinned against him. And Scripture tells us that what we earn by our sin is an experience in a place called hell, eternal separation from God. That's what we all deserve. But God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life and died on the cross for your sins and mine. He paid the price for all of our rebellion and gave us the opportunity to be forgiven of all of it and have a new relationship with God. And he proved that everything he said and did and taught was true by rising again on the third day. He wasn't just some dude who died with great teaching. He was the son of God who came back to life. And we can know it's all true. And when we believe on him and confess him as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved from sin and brought into new life today and abundant life forever. And maybe that's the first place you need to submit to the move of God. Is to understand, I need to be saved today. If that's you, I want to encourage you to take your connection card, to, to fill that out, to, to let us know, to come and talk to myself or any, anyone <laughs> that you know to be a believer. And say, how do I do this? They should be able to tell you where to go from here. And then secondly, maybe there's a move that God wants to do in your life that's scary, that's big. He wants to take you into missions that he's called you to. Maybe he wants to take you into youth group. <gasps> and you're saying, no, I don't believe that's you, God. And God is saying, yeah, it is. And it's time for you to submit to his move in your life in that area. Or to go teach downstairs in kids zone. Or to lead a Bible study. Or to witness to your boss or your coworkers the move of God in your life? Are you ready to submit to the move of God in your family? To begin to bring godly principles for life into who you are with the ones that you love. It's easy to put on a face here and maybe even at work and out in public, but we are our real self amongst our family, aren't we? Let Jesus take control with who you are in your family. Let, let him rule and reign and work within you. Submit. And then finally, this church. I, I, I'm so excited for what God is doing here and will continue to do here. If we as his people will look for where he's working and jump in wholeheartedly and support and pray and submit to what he's doing. He will do big and amazing things through us. Are you willing and ready to submit what he wants to do to what he wants to do in this church? Your church, the one you were called to, brought to, made a member of, that's your family. Are you ready to see what he has for us? I think it's going to be amazing. I look forward to what is to come. Let's take a couple of moments and just ponder. I want you to think about these three questions. Are you ready to submit genuinely prepared to accept and submit to the move of God in your life. Is he laying something on your heart you need just to talk back to him about this morning? If, if everyone would bow your heads and close your eyes, let's just take a moment, spend a second with God. Is there something he's speaking to you about in regards to submission in your life or your family? And now, will you submit?
Will you turn it over to him? Will you trust in what he's telling you? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son, the living word, who gave so much for us. This morning, would you continue to work deep within us and help us to submit to your move, submit to your works, to trust in your hand, even when it doesn't meet our expectations, even when it's scary, even when it takes us out of our comfort zone, help us to submit to your works and your move. I thank you for this church, Father. I pray your blessings upon each and every member of the body and the body as a whole. Would you grow this church in the way that you desire, in the move that you have planned? Would you enable us to be a shining light on the hill? Would you enable us to be a, a force for change according to your good news here in Door County? May we not reject your move and so stifle it, but instead help us to wholeheartedly dive in. Thank you so much for all you do. We trust in your goodness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your life, your death, your resurrection. And it's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, we've had the privilege of gathering together as a congregation. But you know what? It's not just about being people in the same room. It's about being the church, the called out, the ecclesia, who are making a difference in their community. So now, go and be the church looking for the move of God and joining in wholeheartedly in all that he does. Love you all, and see you next time we're around. God bless.